Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. I've, I've come out. I've come out of semi-retirement. I was getting bored, so I've gone out a couple, three days a week, do some carpentry work again. Oh wow! Been tearing kitchens out and that kind of stuff. So you retired from was it Y? What is it? YWAM? Well, I'm, st- I'm still doing that, but that only takes about 20, 15 hours a week, twenty hours a week. I bet. Did you say YWAM, Tim? Yeah, yeah. Where are you? Where do you work? We do. We process donations in YWAM, Vancouver. For all of the world, actually, but um, mostly for Canadian donors. My wife's a YWAMer. She she was in uh, Hawaii when she did her mission trip and DTS. Oh, okay. Stepson did the same. So, but you're a carpenter, like I've, Jesus. I used to build houses. You can do the whole thing, huh? Oh yeah, yeah. I've done it all <laughs> many times. It's fun. I, I enjoy it. Matt going to join us tonight. He and his wife are on vacation. And he sent me pictures of the sharks churning up the water. Wow. So I guess they're not going swimming at the beach. (laughs) (laughs) So you're saying they didn't go on vacation in Indianapolis? No, they did not. I think they're near Myrtle Beach. That's where I did my honeymoon. Well, it must be nice. Florida? South Carolina. Uh, By the way, um, if you go on the uh, Forging Plowshares website and you go to the podcast, there is a button that you can follow and then you can enter your email or you can follow through social media streams. Okay, great. On Saturday and Monday, a new one goes up. Is there anything you're, you're struggling with or anything you got a question about? No, I don't know that I'm struggling with this, but you kind of made a big deal of it. I'm not sure I'm understanding what the big deal is. You were making reference to the pre-incarnated Christ. So are there people who believe that, I I mean, I know people uh, believe that uh, Christ didn't exist before birth, but is there something that's being said that that he had a body before his incarnation kind of in there in Bethlehem or what, does any of that make sense? Or I'm I'm just something that you said, I'm trying to figure out where you're going with that. Yeah, yeah, we need to, maybe this is a kind of paradigm shift for you. It certainly, it, it was for me. When we talk about the logos, what developed and where it developed, you know, I think John Bear locates it in the late Middle Ages up to now. So that David, when probably when you and I were in seminary, this is all we ever heard. That is that for generations, that what has been taught is not what the early church taught. What the early church taught when they taught, you know, when you say the word, Well, that means in John, the same thing it means in Paul when he says the word of the cross, that the Logos is not a disincarnate word. The Logos is the gospel. Now, that hits a strange, but the point is that we know who God is in the incarnate Christ through Jesus, that we don't know of another story other than the gospel Jesus, as Rowan Williams puts it, that we imagine that the biography of God, it includes this kind of short interlude in which we're referring to the incarnate Jesus. The point being, know that what we know through Jesus 
is an eternal fact about God. This jams us up because uh, we're used to thinking sequentially. You know, this happened and then this happened. And so the idea is that the eternality of God has come to us in Jesus, so that the story of Jesus is an eternal fact about God, that the cross is an eternal fact about God. Now, obviously, this can be taken wrongly. It can be made a kind of heretical understanding. These are not passing events in the life story of God, this will be the thing, you know, when we talk about baptism in Romans 6, for example, that we participate in that event of Christ's death and resurrection, that it's still available to us. When Jesus is talking about, he says, I am before Abraham was. God does not exist. You know, when we talk about his eternality, Jack Cottrell literally said this, Jack Cottrell with David and I shared a professor that literally he said that God exists along a timeline. No, that's that's complete heresy. So that God's eternality is such that he is not bound by time, but in, in Christ, we encounter the eternality of God. I have a, a thought, and I'm just wondering if another way to think about this is that, you know, that God doesn't possess potentiality, right? God isn't potentially something different than what he always is, right? God is actual. God is pure actuality. He doesn't have potential. He doesn't potentially become something different. He doesn't change. He's pure actuality. That to me then says that possibly that God has always been human, right? If God doesn't change, if God doesn't become something different because he's pure actuality, then that means that God has always, that if, and if the cross is an eternal fact about God, uh, that if Jesus is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, I, I, I don't, I don't want to fall into some sort of false teaching here, but it's, it sounds to me like what's being unveiled is that God and human beings have always been united because what is united in Christ is the human and divine nature. So the flip side of that then could be that humans have always been divine, right? Because we possess potentiality so we can actually become gods, little G gods, will always be participating, you know, in, in the big G God. But the, what's being unveiled then is that this is what God has always been like. The crucified, you know, the Christ on the cross, this is always who God has been, and this is who he always will be. This is how, in, in a very profound and mysterious way, that the human and the divine are united. It's not that it's not that we're just uh, um, that the way that we get to where we're trying to go is to know uh, intellectually these different um, sort of facts, but that we are becoming what we were created to be, and that is fully human and on our road to becoming fully divine, right? Like that that the, the purpose and meaning of life, I think, is theosis. I mean, the way that uh, Saint Athanasius put this was is that. God became human so that humans will become divine. That's profound, right? That God became human so that humans will become divine. So that's the purpose of life. That, that, that was always the plan for God to, to unite human beings to himself through the passion of Christ. And that's always been an actual fact. But for us human beings, we're always potentially sort of gods. We're always on the way. And Christ, of course, is the way. Can, yeah. I, can I just kind of riff? Off of that, too, because I was thinking 
earlier when we were talking about the dualism, and I just made a little note I wrote down, the whole of Western theology is predicated upon the idea of a dualism that humans are separated from God. I mean, that's all our Romans road, that's all our evangelism, that's all our apologetics. What if that's not, that's not true? That's only in our minds and in our theology. What Matt is saying is we've always been connected to God. Yeah, another way to, to rephrase what Paul was saying earlier is that if, if, the, you know, if, if everything that we're talking about, if God is pure act, then that means that you know, the incarnation, the, the life of Christ, the cross, the resurrection, the ascension, the restoration of all things are accomplished. They're actual. They're act, they've been act, they're actualized because they're, and so we, from our perspective of time, are on sort of a linear path, you know, but for, but in Ephesians, it says we're already seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And so I, you know, there's just those two little, and it's in John, you know, he says, well, doesn't it say in your law that you are, that you're gods, you know, and he's quoting the Psalms there. I, you know, it's one, it's one verse, but it's a, it's a pretty important one, you know? And so in other words, I, I like the way that Tim's thinking about it because the ultimate dualism so this goes back to the Gnostic conversation from earlier, right? That they would have said, well, wait a second. Flesh and spirit are two different things. You know, there's the eternal, there's the temporal, there's the infinite, there's the finite. The, and the twain shall never meet. But of course, people like Kierkegaard and other people like this say, yeah, but that's exactly what the incarnation is, is that God who is spirit becomes flesh. God who is eternal becomes temporal in Christ. God who is infinite becomes finite in Christ. And it's the flip side for us, right? That we're flesh. And, you know, this is uh, that we're becoming more spirit, Uh, that we're, you know, we're temporal beings, but we were made for eternity, that we're finite, but we've invited, we've been invited to participate in the infinite divine life because of what Tim was saying. So that we would, we would imagine that all these things are separate. And maybe we would even imagine that all of us in this group are separate. But of course, Paul just said that that Jesus's prayer was that we would all be one as he and the the father and the spirit are one, right? So if we've been, you know, invited into that Trinitarian life, that that the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit are three different persons, but they're one, just like in this group, we have nine different people. But of course, Christ's prayer was is that we would all be one. You know, in other words, another dualism, I guess, would be to think that, you know, that me and Paul are not united, Right, that, that there's some sort of gap between us, that there's some sort of distance between us, that and that, that we can never really come together. Saint Paul talks about marriage as a really nice way of uh, of illustrating the fact. Well, actually, you can come together, and he says, "But the great mystery that I'm talking about here is Christ in the church, right? So that the husband and the wife come together in the spirit as one." You know, this is a, an amazing thing that I think that John really is laying out in his gospel, and that is is that God is bringing he- so another dualism, you know, be heaven and earth. Right, that these two things they can't ever come together. But of course, you know, heaven and earth are coming to, uh, together in Christ. The human and the divine, the flesh and the spirit, all these different categories are being, and you know, and, and like Paul was saying earlier, the categories that aren't really categories at all, like darkness. Darkness is a failure of the light, and so it's just being overcome. And so it's quite the claim to say that we can't even understand something as simple as life or light apart from Christ. But I do think that St. John is giving us a whole new definition. He's saying, no, actually, you don't even understand what life is apart from Christ. You don't even understand what light is apart from Christ. You know, you don't even understand what true living water is. So he goes through and he uses all these basic things like bread, water, wine, males, females. Like he just goes all the way throughout the gospel to show how all these things, uh, that Christ is the true fulfillment of all these things. And so that it's not to say the difference is obliterated, right? Because 
you know, um, I still think that Paul is going to retain his personhood and I'm going to retain my personhood. But the truth, the truth is, is that I don't know who I am apart from Paul. And I would probably think that Paul in some ways doesn't know who he is apart from me. And so it is in this whole group. And so it is in all of creation, right? That we're all, that we're all united. And that's the, that is the prayer of Christ that we would realize that that unity and so that all these dualisms male female greek and and jew and slave and free and all this stuff those are things that we would make ultimate black and white we would put it in our terms maybe straight and gay you know you could go all the way through and to say that yeah but those are those are sort of temporal identity markers that in christ are are lifted up and united into one another so that good and evil is the ultimate right dualism but no that the, what john's saying is is that evil is just a failure to participate in the good it's a failure to to be divine and that christ then is coming to obliterate those powers and those divisions so it's a it's good news indeed sorry for the long riff i don't know if this is the devil's advocate let me so how's this any different than um uh mormon teaching I mean, the Mormons don't think that Jesus is the eternal God, right? I just mean on the the divine side of it. Doesn't Mormon teaching, we will become, now maybe their, their becoming is uh, not a God, but kind of the God of your own world. You know, every everybody's going to kind of get his own world. Now the men are, I don't, I think the women continue to get the shaft in life. <laughs> um, Sorry, Janice. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Dan. That's just your role in life, I suppose. Yeah. I think I get it because, Matt, I think obviously I'm never going to be God, right? So what does it mean? What does it look like to be divine? That whole idea. I mean, obviously, I, right, we can talk in that language. I want to be God-like. You know, how many times have I said that before? I just want to be God-like or something. Yeah. I, I'm, some of it I'm just trying to work out in my own mind so as not to, uh, I'm certain in any given day I cross in and out of um, heresy. So that's just me. No, I think, I mean, the way that Paul put it, his introduction I thought was excellent, but he said creation's purpose is found in Jesus Christ, right? That's an awesome statement right there. Creation's purpose is found in Jesus Christ. And so I, I told him, I sent him a text and said, okay, and so if, and if we're found in Jesus Christ, then creation's purpose is found in us. Well, first of all, there, there could be that there are truths and other, other religions may be able to give us. It's not that they might have like completely everything wrong. In as much as we're found in Christ, isn't this the language of Paul? I mean, he says Christ in, in you. He says that uh, this is this my understanding of what Christianity is, is that we're, and this is John's gospel, is that we're being invited to participate fully, as fully as we can as creatures. Now, of course, we're never going to become the uncreated, infinite God. We're always going to be creatures. But to participate in the divine life by putting to death the deeds of the flesh and the deeds of the body and, and walking as Christ walks and to be united with God, isn't that the purpose? And, and, and by the way, that has huge impl implications for ethics and things like that, right? Because we're going to walk as Christ walked. We're going to do that. I mean, Jesus says, you'll do greater things than me. I, I certainly haven't reached that level. But now, nonetheless, this does seem to be the, the teaching of the early church, that, that God became human so that humans might become God. And I think that if we, can, if we can read John's gospel in that way to say, well, what does that mean for me? I think that what it means to me, for me is to have a victory over evil. Right. Uh, for me to participate in God's victory over over evil, you know, personally, corporately uh, in this group. Like, I think when we come together and we think about these things, I think that we're doing something here that's uh, we're sharing in the divine life. Jesus says that when two or three are gathered uh, together in my name, I'm there. So he's here somehow. And it's like, well, how's he here? 
I don't know. I think that he's here in David Rawls. I think that he's here in Paul Axton. I think that, that, that sometimes Jesus might show up and not look exactly like he, like we think he would. And this is part of origins point. He says that, you know, that God appears in the poor and humble form of Jesus Christ. Right. Like that's key. Yeah. Like this is amazing. Right. And I'll just say one more thing and let Paul go. But he says that origin says that it's the same thing that the divine sort of think about it. This guy, Jesus is God. This man, Jesus of Nazareth, this carpenter, is God. That's the claim of Christianity. And so he's hidden in this sort of, he's a poor man. He's in this humble sort of form. Philippians 2 says that you know, he, didn't, he didn't count equality with God something to be, to be grasped. But nonetheless, you know, he was God. This is amazing, right? And so Origen says the same thing that he's concealed, right? So the divinity of Christ is in some way concealed. Um, and he says it's the same thing in the scriptures, even in John's gospel, right? That Christ is is there. He's incarnate in the gospel, but that he's concealed. He's sort of, there. there is a veil, and the veil is what he calls the letter. And so we need the spirit of Christ. We need Christ to, I, I like this, Rowan Williams had this picture. It's There's a famous uh, Orthodox icon where Christ is holding the Bible, and it's open. The, the, the Bible's open, and Christ is, so in other words, like Christ is reading the Bible to us, right? He, the, 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 he's holding the scriptures for us. So he's explaining like the Emmaus road. He's, ex, you know, he's explaining the scriptures to us and our hearts are burning and things like this, because that's what we're being invited into. And so this word that John's talking about, this logos is not just a, like a principle. It's something that we take into our hearts and that we live and that we talk about and that we try to inhabit the strange new world uh, that Karl Barth said, but Paul, what were you going to say? It was key. If as thinking about the Mormons, What's missing is the Philippians passage. The idea of a complete self-emptying is the way that we participate. And so sin, by definition, is this doctrine gone wrong. And that is the, the lie of the serpent. You'll be like gods. So if we get this just slightly wrong, we're getting it completely wrong. That the way that you would be like gods is through grasping the tree of the knowledge of good and evil through gnosis. It would be through an abandonment of actually life and a turn from life to this dialectic. And I, I'm afraid that the sign of this is always very clear. I think the male-female thing is always key. I think that where women, as in Mormonism, I mean, that is the original sign of the fall, right? Is the subjugation, the oppression of man over woman. And I, I think that continues. I mean, that's Paul, that's the picture in the New Testament. This is a sign of the fall that I think is very much present there in, in Mormonism in, in, in many ways. The way in which we participate in God is through this self-emptying, which is precisely the undoing of the you will be God's satanic version. That Yeah, I think that, uh, David, your question is well taken, that if we see this in a wrong light or we, we picture this in a wrong way, oh, we, yeah, we're missing the whole thing here. But if, if we understand it, uh, that we really do have access to who God is, and, and as you said, David, participate. This notion of divinization was there among the Anabaptists, and I think it is a key part of understanding the peace of the gospel. The Anabaptists were partly, they, they're entering into this and partly departing from a kind of, I mean, not completely, but a, from a, the Calvinistic penal substitution or Anselmian 
So I think that the fullness of the peace and ethics of the gospel is to be found then in taking up this aspect. In other words, you understand that that what we're describing here is the, and I think it's very much there in John. But one way of reading the Gospels is, oh well, the Gospels are pre-Christian. You understand that's the wrong. That 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 would be a standard misreading. And to say that, well, you know, this is Luther's point. We're not actually meant to do the Sermon on the Mount. That's an impossibility. That would be like you know, if we could do the law or something like that. But this reading of John is to say, no, Christ is the model for us. And so when we're reading the Gospels, we're reading about how to do this thing. This is the entry into what it means to be a Christian. There's uh, nothing pre-Christian about it. Here is God's kingdom being established on earth. And so I think that is also the difference, the apocalyptic difference that this reading of John makes. Paul, don't you think that, I mean, what, what Tim said, I think is key about, because the way that, the way that you become, we become, I think this is what John's saying, is that the way that we become truly Christian or truly human is to be like God, more specifically to be more like Jesus Christ. So in other words, like that's the way that to, if you want to be fully human, you have to be like God. And so I, I love the way that Tim put it. It's, it's so, it's so succinct, but I think it's key that we started the discussion talking about do you know dualisms and the ultimate dualism is man and god what is you know how are those two things ever going to come together but of course that's what john's gospel is about yeah and that's the experiential reality that i think we enter into this unified understanding of reality in which we can now name the presence of god that god is present with us that we can enter into that presence we can participate that in that and I think that we often fail to name it. And I think that that's, to my mind, that's what the Gospel of John should do for us, is it is the entry into this alternative experience of reality. Yeah, I think one of the things that has helped me is to recognize like what we're saying as we approach the Gospel is we are reading, well, it help, the Gospel helps us read the Old Testament. So if you think of it in that way, it's kind of a piggyback idea. To recognize that now we read Genesis 1 through the life of Christ. We read Genesis 1 through John chapter 1. And if you kind of take that timeline element out of it, you realize that, that God's revelation is complete. And Hebrews testifies to it before he spoke in prophets. And, and now he's spoken through his son. And John testifies to it too. So if you take kind of that truth first, you kind of work backwards to recognizing that the pre-existence of Christ is not the point of John 1.1. Or reading the Old Testament as if the, you know, this is certainly the way John is telling the story throughout, that it's almost like the events we know are coming have already happened. And that's the way they're going to read the Old Testament. You know, John uh, records Jesus saying that Moses wrote about me that John records the words of Isaiah, that the words of Isaiah saying, you know, that they were blinded and that they could not hear. That was about Jesus. The, the two on the road to Emmaus, we think that what was uncovered for them, well, those scriptures are about me. And so the idea is we read the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures are the scriptures for the, the apostles. The way that John is reading it, 
and well, I think it's true of all of them, but it's just clear with John and it's clear with Paul. Paul will talk about these things are allegories. Uh, these things are types in which the reality is Christ. Paul will also talk about the mountains, the, the two types, you know, Samaria and the law. And he, he says it's all an allegory. That is that it's a shadow in the words of Hebrews, that it was already there. It was already true. God's not bound by history. And these events that we are bound by a timeline, these are eternal truths that we discover in Scripture. This is not the way we think. It is a shift. I think it's the way the biblical writers are thinking, and it's the way that the early church fathers are thinking. John Baer says this, that he says that he's never found in any of the early uh, patristics any notion of the pre-incarnate Christ. That when it says logos, it means the gospel. And so who Jesus is, is the same as who Christ is. Is that disturbing to you? I was just trying to clarify. For some reason, my mind was uh, racing towards, we're not saying that uh, Jesus took on flesh before Bethlehem. Everything we know about God, we see in Jesus. And ultimately, Uh, I think it's Greg Boyd, his book on warrior God as he's dealing with violence. I forget how many pages I'm in, three or 400 pages. And he spent the first three, 400 pages to basically say, you can't interpret the Old Testament without knowing who Jesus is. That's it. That we have a final and full revelation. That revelation was always about Jesus, even Genesis, even in the beginning. But weren't we taught in Sunday school that when God walked in the garden, that was the incarnate Jesus? And when there was the other man in, in the in the fiery furnace, that was Jesus. And, you know, he was under every rock and behind every bush. That's, you know, that's sort of origin. Origin finds Jesus everywhere in the Old Testament. <laughs> and you may not agree with the way that he, you know, his particulars of his allegorical method, but the spirit of his method is one that he says he's inherited, that he's gotten from Paul and he's gotten from John. And, of course, the thing about origin, that Henry de Lubach is going to do a kind of resourcement. That is, he thinks that the modern church has been overtaken by rationalism, by historicism, by historic, you know, the historical critical method that people, we just, we look for the historical fact, and that's the truth of it. And so origin is de Lubach's example of where to begin with this resourcement. He uses origin then to recover this early reading of Scripture to say that what we have to go back to is a spiritual reading, as you know, John will talk about it. A theological reading is a way of putting it. And I think that's right. I think that what we've lost in the modern period is, is this thing that we're encountering, especially in John. It's there in Paul. It's there very much in origin. I did a blog referencing this, and I quoted David Bentley Hart. After Paul, there is no single Christian figure to whom the whole tradition is more indebted. It was origin who taught the church how to read scriptures as a living mirror of Christ, who evolved the principles of later Trinitarian theology and Christology who majestically set the standard for Christian apologetics, who produced the first and richest expositions of contemplative spirituality, and who simply said, 
laid the foundation of the whole edifice of developed Christian thought. I think Hart's right here. The origin is this key influence. But of course, if you would trace where origin is gaining that influence, he does credit both John and Paul, but I think his primary one, uh, he would go to John. He refers to John as the high priest of religion of the Logos. You know, it's John that gives us a spiritual vision, and Origen is very much concerned. He says, you know, there's the, the literal reading, what he will call the, the reading by the letter, or there's the spiritual reading, and he references Revelation here, picturing Revelation mm -hmm. and John as the same author. He uses language, you know, the typology that we see in John. We're going to see a lot of that, like in Hebrews, like in Paul. Origen will develop that uh, in his commentary on the Gospel of John. And so he, Origen says that it's John who attains the goal of all the Gospels. We find its goal in John. He tells us of the Word in the beginning, the Word being God. And Origen makes a big, you know, he notes this, that what that means is that the Word made flesh is God, that this fleshly Jesus is God. But indeed, he reserves for us the one who leaned on Jesus' breast, the greater and more perfect expressions, and then he goes through the I am sayings. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. And in the apocalypse, he says, I am the Alpha and Omega. And so he would say that the Gospels are the first fruits of all scriptures, but the first fruits of all the Gospels is that according to John. So Origen is giving primacy to John and John's interpretive method, John's theological way. You know, it's there in Paul, it's there in John. And he says that we have to actually experience the Gospel in the way that John did, that no one can understand who is not leaned on Jesus' breast. From Jesus that Mary be his mother. We must be another John, he says. For if Mary had no son except Jesus, you know, he's thinking of the scene there at the cross where Jesus says, woman, here is your son, and here is your mother to John. He's saying, well, now John stands in the place of Jesus. But in a sense, all of us then need to stand in that same place. In other words, Origen is, is giving us this he would call it a spiritual reading. It is that we enter into this experience. And he quotes Paul, you know, Christ lives in him. The one who would understand it, he no longer lives, but Christ lives in him. He says we can read the Gospels in one of two ways. You know, we can read them in a kind of literal sense, in a physical sense. And unfortunately, I'm afraid this is what we've been bound up in with a kind of modern historicism. We imagine that if we get the intent of the author, we and of course the idea is know that this is showing us the mind of God, the mind of Christ, that we may know the things that are given us by God. This is the way Origen views the gospel, but he views the whole world this way. That all of the world, that you know, and he quotes Paul here, that the things that are visible reveal to us those that are invisible, and of course the invisible are the things that uh, are ultimately real. What we have in the scholarship, in Charles Hill's estimate, 
and uh, John Bear, you know, many people have, have noted. I, I don't know how, once Hill has written his book, I think it's just irrefutable. But anyway, what Hill is tracing for us, he just goes through the scholarship on John, and he says that there is a, a, a universal consensus that John was the domain of the, the heretics, and that Orthodox Christians in the early church were, uh, uh, because John was associated with the heterodox, or with what would come to be the Gnostics, that the Orthodox avoided it. And so Hill spends a portion of his book just showing that, just scholar after scholar, that this is the consensus, you know, that they come down and say, everybody that knows anything, they know this. And then he just takes it apart and shows, you know, he says that there's a silence around John that, you know, these scholars are projecting into history that, Oh, that people don't quote from John, or people don't use John. And of course, what Hill is showing, no, it's just the opposite, that there in fact is a kind of cacophony surrounding John, that, that it's not a silence, it's just the opposite, and it's not that the Gnostics embrace John or the heterodox. You know, when we, I, I'm going to go ahead and misuse the word, I, because, we, you know, Gnostic people say, well, you know, obviously that's second century. And, and even then, you know, who's a Gnostic, who's not. But at, at any rate, what Hill is showing is the heterodox or those Gnostic thinkers, like Gnostic-like thinkers prior to, to Valentinius and the Gnostic school that would develop, that prior to that, the Gnostics attacked John. They were the enemies of, you know, they saw John as anti-Gnostic. Now, it, it, it does come about that they will take John and adapt it, but they do that to all the, the you know, they're going to do that to all the Gospels. He talks about a Jehanophobia that scholars today project back on the Orthodox, a Jehanophobia, and then in the Gnostics, they project back a Jehanophilia. His point is, no, it's precisely not that. It's precisely the opposite that there was a Jehanophobia among the Gnostics. They're the ones who didn't like John. And it's just everywhere. You know, if you pick up anything on contemporary Johannine scholarship, or maybe for, you know, the past couple of generations, this is the way they were talking, that John is a Gnostic text. You know, this goes back to Rudolf Boltman, and uh, the, there's this whole school of the people that picturing John as if he's Gnostic. And so Hill's point is, no, that's exactly wrong. And my point with that is to say, that says more about modern scholarship. And I think it's even more than modern scholarship. I think it's there at a popular level. That, that is the way that John reads the Bible. We don't read it that way anymore. We're not used to that. You know, I, I experienced this teaching John to undergraduates. They let me have teach John because, you know, let Axton take it, because that's that strange gospel, and he's kind of strange too. They got inundated with the synoptics, and of course what they were doing when they were reading the synoptics was purely the historical critical method, and it was all about harmonizing the history, as if that's the main thing you do when you read the Bible or you read the Gospels. Well, we got to harmonize it. 
And so the very idea that these books are theological, that, that was strange. But then when you begin reading John from this kind of theological perspective, you could just see that was strange. They, uh, I think some students assumed I was just an out-and-out heretic, that I would even presume to talk this way, or some got very excited about it because it was a very, it's a new way of, you know, it's, I think that's the way the New Testament reads the Old Testament. I don't know how you understand John otherwise. And that becomes clear, you know, in other words, we've, we've mistreated, we've reduced, we've flattened how we read scriptures. We've all been subjected to that. I think that what we are missing is a Johannine spirituality. Maybe we don't see it in a book like John, but we can see it in someone like Origen. And maybe you agree, maybe you think Origen gets carried away. Or Well, okay, but is, is the spirit of the enterprise true? And that is that the Hebrew scriptures are about Jesus. N.T. Wright would say no. He's a brilliant scholar. I'm not denying that. But here is this probably the most prominent New Testament scholar of our day. And Wright is aware that Paul is, you know, he will talk about, but Wright himself then is attached to this kind of a historical development. The, the thing that the writers of the New Testament do, he would say, you know, he, he's resisting that. His whole project is one in which you understand who Jesus is through understanding who Israel is. And I think it's just the opposite that we understand what Israel is, what we understand what the temple is, we understand what the sacrifice is. And I'm not saying, it was, obviously, there's a, there may be a, a kind of a two-way street here, but I think we give Christ primacy in our reading and understanding of the Old Testament. You know, what do you call this? And even the word apocalyptic, you understand that word is used in such a different, in different ways by different people. But that would be one thing to call it, an apocalyptic reading, that is, that Christ has broken in. You know, this is the picture I, that I've used of that Hippolytus gives us. When they talk about the incarnation and in the early church fathers, they don't even begin with the birth of Christ. You know, where they begin is the cross. And they picture the cross as flowing backward to the incarnation and flowing forward that is, that in the church, that what Hippolytus is reading, you know, that they're also going to read this in, in Revelation, the church continues to bring about the incarnation of Christ. The incarnation continues. If you could unpack or show me a, a couple sides of this statement, and it's under the title, Defeat of the Universal Nominalist-like Sickness, in contrast talking about the definitive giving, didyme. In contrast, there is a passive handing over in which the agent simply relinquishes or betrays the word or his words. The gift specifically defeats the betrayal. So I need a little help with this passive handing over and relinquishing, betraying the word. I'm making a big claim here, and that is that what I've just described in the scholarship and what I think is there at the popular level, that has also developed at a philosophical level uh, that has certainly, it's been there, it, it's influenced theology. I don't, are you all familiar with the term nominalism? I've had it explained to me 12 times and I always forget. I mean, it's naming, in name only. Or in name idea. only. It's just, I, it's to nominate. Some... 
You name SCOTUS. the stuff. You know, it's often pictured as being connected with Duns Scotus, with uh, William of Ockham, but probably we should primarily relate it to William of Ockham. They're both Franciscans, but uh, the idea in nominalism, and I just think this is developing all along, and I would connect it to this discussion about John. That is, you know about the whole discussion about the imminent trinity and the economic trinity. And the idea is, oh, well, we don't actually have access to the imminent trinity. We only have access to the economic trinity. Uh, the economic trinity being how God has revealed himself you know, historically, and that's different from who God is in and of himself. Nominalism, you know, takes this really kind of a step further and just says, well, we don't have access to any universals. Uh, we don't have access to who God is in and of himself. This is the understanding, that is the context that gives birth to Protestantism. Protestantism flows out of nominalism. We're just there. We just don't know we're there. It's just the atmosphere in which we live and move and have our being. It's nominalist. And so Luther is going to talk about, you know, the hiddenness of God. You know, this is there in Pascal, that God has absconded and uh, we don't have access. That's what I'm talking about in that sentence, is that there has arisen this idea that in the, in the story of Jesus, in some way that is just a kind of secondary picture of who God is. And I think that part of what is playing into this is the notion of the pre-incarnate Christ, as if Jesus can, the humanity and the deity of Jesus is something that we can split, as if we can go through and divide the humanity from the deity, go through and find the deity and the humanity. And of course, the point is, well, no, there, the, the incarnate Christ is divine. The human Jesus is divine, and the deity of Christ is given to us in human form. He's not an avatar. He's not, you know, this is a reality. God has truly become incarnate. And I, I'm afraid that's what we've lost. We've actually changed up the meaning of the, the idea of the incarnation, because we picture it as a kind of episode, oh, even in the life of Jesus, you know, uh, before that, Jesus had other stuff going on, and later he'll do some other stuff too. In other words, we're thinking of it all in time terms, in, in chronos time, not in Hebraic time, not in this idea of an event, an unfolding event in which eternity is breaking into time. The imminent trinity is the economic trinity. We really encounter who God is in Christ, in Jesus Christ. You know, this is, Tim, I know you like Richard Rohr, but this is what, you know, he's a good Franciscan. He's still saying this today. We need to get rid of Jesus and cling to Christ. In other words, that historical person is of no interest to us. We need the Christ, you know, the cosmic Christ, and that is in some way different from Jesus. That Well, who is this Christ? Well, the logos, you know, that's like that Greek thing that kind of archetype. And actually, I, I think it's there in Irenaeus. You know, he talks about that with the Gnostics. He does it with word, light, life. He's saying that we can take all of these categories and remove them from the historical Jesus. We can reify these categories as if they exist in and of themselves. And that's where the Gnostics are going to slip all of their Gnosticism into. That gap 
between the pre-incarnate Christ and Jesus is precisely the gap, I think, in which not only Gnosticism, but I think what becomes nominalism. This is too much, but what becomes modern Christianity? I know that's too much, but we kind of live there. And to get out of that, I think we've got to be able to name this thing. We've got to be able to name this idol that, that we've all been subjected to. And so I think it's John, maybe more than anyone else. I think it's John that certainly influenced origin. And I think Hart is right that, you know, the Cappadocian fathers, you just go through, they're just going to praise origin. They're all saying, oh, we're just doing what origin did. Now, they may be trying to improve on origin, but they're inspired by origin. I see it just for a second here and a second there. Off the top of your head, can you think of a name for this idol? This is the dualism. I'm, I know I'm, I'm using this term Gnosticism in a kind of imprecise way. Gnosticism <laughs> as a developed religion probably only comes about mid-late second century. But there are the proto-Gnostics. In, in my understanding, the, the human failure has a characteristic form of which Gnosticism is one manifestation. Actually, Hans Jonas, who is kind of the premier expert on Gnosticism, he'll go back, he'll relate it to the, you know, the early Greeks. And I like Jonas, you know, this kind of big picture thing. That's not usually what we're doing when we're talking about the false teachers. But that's the idea. In other words, I think that once we understand that what we would do is always do identity through difference, through a dualism. We would always introduce a gap in reality, that the thing that is signified and, you know, the signifier, there's always a gap. And so that's really, I think, the darkness in John. That's the idea of giving or giving up. Handed, they hand him over and they just hand him over. It's kind of a passive thing that they all do. And John is identifying this, this darkness, and Christ is overcoming the darkness. And that's the didomai, or the, the term there, the Greek term. John just keeps using that term all the way through. And my point with the term is to say that he's identifying then this human failure in the darkness and the nature of the darkness. Who gave him up? Well, first it was the sin of Judas, and then it was the sin of each of the characters in the John's picture give Christ up. They relinquish him. They're, it's a kind of passive thing that happens to all of them. Derrida talks about the impossibility of giving a gift, of actually giving something, of actual presence. In other words, there's always this gap. There's always this duality. There's always this difference. And he's saying that this difference, this difference, this identity through difference structures human thought. Derrida, I think, is very Hebraic. He's very biblical, even though he's an atheist, supposedly, in, in describing this. And so his point is it's impossible to give a gift. It's a, a true presence is an impossibility. And my point is, no, Jesus gives. There is true grace in Christ. Here is the gift that is given. Just to add this statement um, later on, uh, you wrote, to pass from betrayal to giving in the manner of Christ specifically involves cross-bearing. That's the way you give a gift. It is a sacrificial love. The way that we would normally think or do things is in antagonism, is in through difference. 
Don't you know that one man must die that the nation might be saved? Make uh, Rome great again, however you want to say it. Make America great again. That is that there is an antagonism that is inherent to this. This is Girardian, but I think it's very much there in the Gospels. There is always something that is, you know, in this oppositional difference, there is something that is always rejected, this, the scapegoat. But I think that is illustrative of something. I think Gerard is illustrative of something that's even, uh, maybe it's even deeper than Gerard. I think, you know, this is a, a way, I, I just read Derrida and Gerard together. Derrida, in fact, gives us the philosophical, biblical understanding that Gerard is illustrating then through the scapegoating mechanism. And so the only way you, you, you get beyond this is you identify with the scapegoat. You identify the one with the one crucified outside the city, this sacrificial love. In other words, as long as we're clinging to life, or as long as we're grabbing, as long as we're obtaining, in fact, we're, we're missing what we're striving for. And the picture here is, no, we're given this gift. We have it. I read this in a profound sense. We can experience life, and that life is the experience of God. Here is a first-order experience of deity that is available to us in recognizing. Those of you who have read John Bear, this may sound uh, a little familiar, too. You know, Bear is going to talk this way. That's what Bear is talking about with Michael Henry, that there is access to God through this experience of life. I think we lose that in this, first of all, this misreading of John, this flat reading that I think is connected to a misidentification of the Logos. That is a hist that flattens out into a historicism that becomes a kind of nominalism that gives rise then to what we call Protestantism, Luther and Calvin in that sense. Paul, I'm thinking that maybe one of the the like Jim, I believe you asked what is it if you could put a name to the idolatry, that there there may be like the the poetic reading, we'll put it that way. Like the thick metaphorical or symbolic, it's not even symbolic, it's just a... It's the poetic, it's it's a creative expression that you leave aside when you approach something as a literal historical modern kind of reading. You kind of got to have that romantic strain. Or you've got maybe lead with that to see that the life that you're reading about on this page is one that's available. Do you like the woman at the well? It's water too. And and how all these signs work together to be. The thing itself, Christ comes to us through the pages. That necessitates an, an openness of interpretation and an openness of experience while you're encountering the text. Not some pre, not some prior, maybe linear expression of what you're supposed to get out of it, the meaning. Although you can, you can do that too. I mean, I, I went through the prologue of John this week and read it very carefully and very slowly. But I was also sitting alone and just letting time happen to me and encountering the text in a different way. And we all have times when we do that. But I think that's kind of a priority. And John introduces the life of Jesus to us in that way by starting with the prologue and not starting with genealogies, you know. And, and something I heard, David, that you said a while ago, I think what John would say to us was there was no Christ prior to Bethlehem. John would even say there was no Christ prior to his baptism. I mean, that's where he picks it up, or he starts with the wedding at Cana, whatever you want to say. There's something primary in these 
seven days, these seven signs that help us see everything that came before it, even Jesus's childhood. And it flows every direction. Let me get my other pencil. If you take the timeline, right? And Christ is in the middle where the graphite meets. John does this. Yeah, he folds it all in. It, you know, it all flows from right there. So you're looking at the Old Testament and even earlier thoughts about who Christ was told to be from the perspective of life from these pages, life living in this water being poured out from the source right here. This is prior to Genesis 1-1, yeah. pointing to the poetic, I guess. I don't know if there's yeah. another word for it, but certainly the uh, historical literal can be the idolatrous. Yeah. Yeah. What is the idolatry? Is it identity through difference? What If you take the literal structure of an idol, what is happening in idol worship? Well, you're, you're reifying, you're taking nothing, and you're making it an absolute something. And that's always what you're doing in any idolatrous system. And this identity through difference, that's what you're doing. What's at the center of that is nothing. There's nothing there. It's a bootstrap way of thinking. That is, we're going to get the system going in and through the difference. This is why they're all playing with the term nothing. That's why Heidegger's infatuated with nothing. Hans Jonas, by the way, who studies, you know, he, he relates Gnosticism and modern nihilism. He says they're made of the same nothing, same stuff. Schufrader talks about Anselm is the first rational mystic. Heidegger is the last rational mystic. So I just, I take everything to be of this same structure that it takes nothing and makes it an absolute something. That is that what's at the center of it, there ain't nothing there. <laughs> and of course, some people acknowledge that, but they say, yes, but this nothing is absolute. In other words, they do the trick again. Some people are covert nihilists. Other people are overt nihilists, but they're all doing the same thing. It's all nihilism. You said Anselm was the first rational mystic. That's a strange way of talking because usually we think of rationalism as standing over and against mysticism. But understand that Anselm is a monk, right? They're all into mystical experiences. But it's Anselm who gives us the ontological argument. Uh, you know, what's the name of God? God is uh, something than which nothing greater can be thought. He's actually playing with the terms something and nothing in the sentence, in the name for God. What's the definition of the something in that sentence? Uh, in a sentence, in the way that, that grammar works, the two terms just refer to one another. So you only know what something is through the nothing. What's the nothing? Oh, it's over and against the something. He says, this is the name for God. He doesn't even use the word God. He says, something than which nothing greater can be thought. You can think this thought. And he tells the monks at Beck, go in your room, this evening, you don't need to get out your Bible. Just think this thought. And in thinking this thought, you'll have an encounter with God. It's rational. It's reason. You know, we usually we think rationalism is over and against mysticism. But actually, the way that rationalism functions in the West is then it begins, it gets its footing. You know, I would trace it to Anselm, but most people would go to Rene Descartes. But you understand Rene Descartes is just doing the Anselmian program. I think, therefore, I am. He, he loves Anselm, by the way. He, he was, he's doing Plato as over and against Aristotle, doing Anselm as over and against Aquinas. So that rationalism, pure rationalism, operates. This is Derrida, you know, this is identity through difference. It's always that, that yeah, it's reason, but pure reason 
is built upon this same structure. And what the where that begins is that through this structure, you know, in, in Descartes, he's actually arguing for God and experience of God, but that's what Anselm was doing. The idolatry always does this. It takes nothing and makes it an absolute something. That's uh, connected to a lie. It's a lie. I think we're deceived. Uh, We're deceived at the level of desire. This is my point about desire, that Paul's depiction of desire is it's already in its failed form, a first-order experience of a deception. Because the thing that we would desire, the object of desire, it always eludes us. He talks about, you know, the, that I did not know what it was to covet apart from the law, thou shalt not covet. This is Romans 7. And in other words, the law gives rise to desire. That is, this pure symbolic order gives rise to desire. And so I'm just reading that. I just think that's what is taking place in the Bible when they're talking about darkness and false teaching. I assume they all agree on what the problem is. And that's what John is doing in his depiction of darkness. As we get into it, the you know, what they're they're all picturing this kind of thing. You know, even Peter, no Lord, you can't go up to, to Jerusalem and die. In other words, that's not the way you gain life. The way you gain life is through violence. And what I mean by violence is not just whacking off ears, but it's through this agonistic, you know, difference. You gain life through death, through dealing out death. You gain something through nothing. However, he said it in the, uh, at the end there, he said that was when the purpose was stated. These things yeah. have been written that you might believe, that we may believe. I have a question for either for Brian or for Paul, based upon what you just said. If that's John's sort of thesis statement, or, or you know, I don't know if that's his thesis statement, but he's saying that's the reason why I wrote this book is so that you would believe. Well, how's that different from a sort of Gnostic, you know, that, well, I've given you this knowledge so that you can know it, so that you can understand it and have eternal life. How is what John's saying different, Paul or or, or Brian? Uh, oh, I think this is Brian's question. Okay. Oh, man. I, I, is it pistis or is it, um, you know, there's a, the two different words. There's trust and there's belief, and that's a whole other topic. Yeah, but, yeah. Yeah, I, th- I, want, I mean, I think that word believe, uh, maybe uh, some answer, Matt, that, that word believe that we use, um, we very much have sunk that in our in our culture, not necessarily uh, Jesus's culture. I, I don't know that the word believe in pistis, uh, pistis is faith, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, Matthew Bates has done some great work with that word uh, dealing with allegiance, so that faith is not just some intellectual idea, but when faith is usually talked about it, it it's an allegiance. Because, well, in, in John's epistle as well, I think it's the second chapter, I mean, he ties knowledge of God directly to, you know, following Jesus' commands, loving your neighbor, and knowing that Jesus is, is resurrected from the dead. So knowledge, and, and I take belief to be in that same category, is intimately tied with not simply affirming, uh, mentally affirming a proposition, but if Jesus is the truth, mm. and he's a person, it's actually participating in a life just like that. Good that's, point. I think that's, that's got to be it. You know, I like uh, we were reading um, Alan Kreider's book, um, David, Nine, Paul, and a couple other people, and it was really interesting that 
Kreider's going through the early church and he's saying, he's showing how, you know, things were very different on, and how they used to do things. Like there was a whole process called catechesis where these catechumens would go through this whole process of sort of conversion and then they would be baptized and then they would be introduced into the mysteries of like Holy Communion and stuff like that. Right. So it's kind of really interesting because like, Today, the way that we do it is like, okay, do you believe Jesus was the Christ? Okay, check. Do you believe that he rose from the dead? Okay, check. Do you, you know, right? See, so we go through these different things. Like, do you believe this? Do you believe that? But it, but in those days, in the old days, the people had to, you know, stop. They had to change their life. They had to inhabit this new what Kreider calls a habitus. You know, a new habit, a new way of life. So it's like, you know, if you're if you're having sex with a bunch of women, you gotta stop. If you're being violent, you gotta stop. You gotta, in other words, you gotta like change your ways, and then we'll initiate you into the mysteries, which are that's what the sacraments were called. So in other words, like the catechumens. They had to depart right before the communion and stuff happened. It was like, okay, catechumens now depart. We're going to do the, you know, the Eucharist together. So it's like really interesting that they had to change their practices before they were initiated into the Christian gnosis, you know, of, of like the mysteries and things like that. So it was kind of flipped in the early church. Uh, you had to actually live this thing out. Then they were like, okay. I think that like David's really for real about this. Like he actually is going to become, you know, a Christian. He's already changed his ways. Now we're going to baptize him. Now we're going to initiate him into the the fullness of the mysteries of the of our of our faith. You know, it's kind of a, an amazing difference. I think that came up the other day when I was listening to someone talking about Gnosticism and uh, and belief. That title, Teresa Morgan. Roman faith and Christian faith, pistis and fetus in the early Roman Empire. I think sometimes I said. What started out as a movement by putting trust in Jesus and his, what he said and who he was and behaving like him has become now a religion about believing the right things. It doesn't matter how you live, doesn't matter how you behave, doesn't matter what you do, as long as you've ticked off the right boxes. But there's a wonderful meme going around on Facebook. There's just Jesus and this little girl up in heaven, and she goes, where is everybody? He says, well, you're the only one who got it all right. <laughs> <laughs> everybody else's theology was off just a little bit yeah just a little bit there'll be a test <laughs> yeah this is hayes point i don't know if it you know that the faith of christ is the point of not christ as an object but that we become in the subject place of faith and so i think that that is the sense of of believing there that that's the thing that is there in the the final scene, you know, with Peter, Peter believes kind of, but not the Philippians two or the washing feet or the taking up the cross kind of faith. He has kind of an objective sort of faith. And so feeding sheep, that doesn't work if you're, uh, if you're stuck on uh, Christ as an object. There's an interesting book by, I think his name is Philip Lee. It's called Against the Protestant. Gnostic. Yeah, 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 yeah. That Michael Harden goes on and on and on about that book, and he says no one has ever refuted his thesis that most Christianity, Protestant Christianity today, is full-blown um, Gnosticism. Hey, it's good to meet everybody. I think we're up and running. Dan, good to see you. <laughs> I'm looking at your map. Look how far away Dan is from us. I mean, it's like it's insane how big the world is, you know? That's about as far away as you get. And yet we're united in spirit. Yes. See? All right. Everybody have a good week. Bye, okay. Everybody. Good night. Good night. Bye.
Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.